This week, we delve into the lore and mystery behind the greatest library in all of Faerun. We're visiting Elminster's Candlekeep Companion and giving you the chance to win one of four digital copies. Welcome to We Speak Common. Hello, Joe. Hello, Benjamin. <laughs> How's it going? You all right? Yeah, not bad, mate. Not bad. Uh, how are you? I'm good. Um, had a nice week. Had a lot of messages in from people listening, so that was quite nice. All right. Yeah, just um, we've had uh, a lovely guy called Ray message me on uh, Reddit and said that he's made his transition from player into dm alongside us and wanted to offer us a one shot in in thanks so um that's quite sweet we've had a few uh a few emails just getting in touch talking about dnd in general um yeah it's been it's been a good week been in touch with people this week which is nice interesting interesting how's just been yeah not bad mate not bad you know the uh the huge i've not really played anything as such this week i was just planning a few bits and whatnot um and i just kind of i was i was just watching like different tv shows and stuff like that and then basically just plagiarizing ideas and just <laughs> then putting them in into my one note like i had i had so many times this weekend when i was because my brother was around, so we were just watching different bits and bobs and old films and stuff. And uh, then I realised I'm just a hack that has zero originality mm-hmm. and uh, everything is stolen. There um, are new, I, no ideas. No new ideas. Which I guess is fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, we've talked about it before. We all do it, don't we? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd like to think, you know, I had some originality but i don't think i do do you know what i find i find is that i think i've had an original idea and then like five months down the line i realized no i was actually subconsciously copying something else (laughs) well that's what keeps happening to me i keep thinking okay um i've no i've got this idea or something but then when i really think about it i'm like "Mm, i kind of just stole it from this yeah I i suppose the trick is to take one idea and another and just smash them together and then you've got, you know, something, something slightly sort of new. new. Yeah, that that can work. It can also could be be very dangerous because you get two things, you smash them together, they just don't mix. But um, sometimes that's like the most fun thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've just been thinking like, I don't know, I, I was I've been when it comes to my D and D world and what I try and what I want to do with it. I start thinking about it on sort of deeper levels in terms of themes and stuff like that and mm-hmm. and these different cultures and their representation and what I want them to make to be and to and to represent and how that affects the players and all that. And then I and then I just think like Yeah, but do the players care? <laughs> are, they, are they gonna are they just gonna hit the things I put in front of them? Yeah. And like I'm like ninety percent of the time, yes. But that, like, you know, that odd ten percent, I'm like, okay, it really pays off. I guess I'll hold out for that. (laughs) I see. I often find that. I often think, like, oh, do the players actually care? But they, they do. I find my problem is more: um, will the players actually find this? (laughs) Will they actually understand it and appreciate it, or will it just be a thing where they go, oh, cool, and (laughs) and then they forget? 
Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, especially in my Star Wars campaign, where like um, my brother's playing. Like I say, he's pretty new to tabletop RPGs in general, so mm-hmm. he. I don't really know how he's how much he's picking up of different things and their their relevance to him, mm-hmm. but I was putting a lot of detail into this kind of alien world and it had this sort of special substance on it that was causing problems and and I what was kind of cool about this is just one sort of hook or spark uh, of an idea allowed me to really flesh out this entire scenario. It's basically it's set kind of in the Clone Wars and there's obviously clones and droids fighting on this um, <clears throat> jungle-ish like planet, but there's this um, substance on it. It's almost like a, a tree bark type thing, but mm. it, it, it covers the landscape. It's over everything, and it, it just destroys equipment um, and makes it really difficult for you to communicate through radio relays and stuff like that. It, it kind of had a basic effect. I, I, I read it on like Wikipedia or something, and then I just sort of fleshed it out. But what was cool is that then led to the idea of like, okay, these two people are fighting they're already in this dense jungle environment but now none of their radios work how does that affect things okay so everyone's a bit more decentralized it's a bit more like guerrilla warfare but obviously the droids are going to have a much harder time with this than the clones because they're droids they're they're made of metal um which is a problem but then i'm like okay so what happens to the droids when they're like cut off from their higher command like and then i start thinking okay what if they sort of start to develop their own kind of tactics and intelligence when they're not working as one massive cohesive unit. Mm. So now you have these sort of like super groups of droids just rolling around the jungle with no real purpose, just murdering clones, you know. Jesus. Um, and that was like my, that was like the impetus. But it all came from just this one little idea of this tree bark stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was then I was sort of thinking about that. I mean, like, wow, that's, uh, you know, it's just interesting where you're, sort of creative ideas come from yeah i often find that a lot of the the best stuff comes from a very small or simple origin um like Mm. you find something small and you and you build out from that rather than try and beginning building something grand to begin with uh i had my um my other dragon heist group session this week so this is their third session and they're all apart from one player fairly new and that was quite fun they they cleared out the they finished chapter one, so they cleared out the uh, sewer base for the Xanathar's Guild. And yeah. uh, ironically, I almost outrightly killed a character. Um, I felt I felt bad because uh, if I kill one of your guys' characters, you kind of, like, you're used to the game, you kind of know, like, that's how things go. Because they're brand new, I was like, oh, God. Um, so in the Xanathar's Guild hideout, there's uh, the... You go into a room and there's loads of bandits in there, but they're focusing on bordering up a door and um mm. stopping something coming through it's like into a, a privy basically and there's in the book there's a gray ooze in there because they're level one we you guys were level five so i made it a black pudding to make it more challenging and i just kept that in for these guys who are level three and uh so it's quite a tough encounter but i wanted it to be quite tough anyway and one of them uh got caught in the use and was i think she was she, if she took 31 points she'd be outrightly dead she took 27 so it was very close um but it was quite quite interesting seeing them fight this creature that you know even just touching like you you touch a black pudding and it begins to eat away at your armor um and like trying to people trying to stab it with with weapons and seeing that that's less effective and it's doing minus one penalties to their weapons and things like that and it doesn't take slashing damage because uh, it's basically goop um although there was a moment where 
there were two two players fighting this black pudding one of them was a fighter the other was a uh, is a druid and the druid had a shillelagh uh, staff the yeah. fighter had a trident and they'd uh or not a trident maybe it was a i think it was an axe something that did slashing trident's um piercing and the slashing obviously the axe did nothing and i you know said all that in both fluff and in mechanical terms and then the druid on their turn was like oh well i've got my quarter staff but um i think i'm just gonna hit it with my with my scimitar <laughs> and i was like um uh, okay <laughs> so I, I told them i was like to be fair you're next to this fighter you probably you will have noticed that that's probably not going to work but i think it's just part of them getting getting to terms with what their abilities do like she was still trying to understand that shalele lasted like a minute and in combat that's like 10 rounds and and that it was actually making the staff better than her scimitar even though you yeah. oh a sword's better than a stick but you know so i think there's um there's some moments like that, but I think that's the the fun of and the struggle of playing with a brand new group and, and teaching that's them got, the game. That's kind of interesting you bring it up because I was watching a video the other day from, um, oh, was it Taking 20 or Talking 20? Talking 20, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was basically comparing some of the features of uh, 5e and Pathfinder. And one of the most interesting ones I found was how the action economy works and how it's really oh, was a this lot the, easier. To... Um, D&D versus pa- uh, Pathfinder 2e video. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I've watched this. It's a yeah. very good video. But it's so interesting how the action economy, I didn't really think about this, would be so much more easy to understand in Pathfinder, mm-hmm. even though there's ultimately much greater variation in what you can do. Yeah. Um, for people who don't know, you just basically have three actions in Pathfinder and you can spend them on whatever you want. You don't you don't have say a movement action that you have to spend on movement. You just have three actions. You spend them on what you want, different things you want to do, different costs, different amounts of actions. So mm. spell could cost anything from one action to three actions. It has varying degrees of effectiveness, essentially. Um, and that is a lot more simple than saying, okay, okay, you, um, you have an action, you have a bonus action. Yeah. Like, okay, I use, I use second wind, which means I then can't misty step because they're both bonus actions, even though I haven't used my actual action yet, which yeah. you think would be more important than a bonus action. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's just how the game works. And it's so it, that can be a little bit more tricky to get your head around. But yeah, think, so it's interesting how. I think everyone should, um, should check that video out because it is, it is really insightful. And um, I did have to sort of sit through the bits where he said things that i didn't agree with but in in you know broad strokes i think it's um it's a really interesting look at the two systems and the thing with 5e is i think you once you know the rules of 5e you're you're there you've got it it's easy but it's that it's that hurdle of getting into it um whereas looking at pathfinder 2 it's like oh the some of the system seems really simple and getting into it'd be great but then the actual playing of the game and the fact that that book is so damn big uh sort of i think that's where the hurdle comes in for that but then again we haven't got a group that runs two pathfinder two so i think that the problem with now having not really read all of it only a very small 
uh, percentage of it. Mm. For me, the problem with Pathfinder 2, and this kind of comes up in the video, is that there are a lot of rules, which is perfectly fine, even if you're a new dungeon master, because it seems like the onboarding of that game is pretty good. Mm. The character creation, I, I read through all that part, that seems really simple. It's very... Um, it just makes a lot of sense logically when you're going through it. The order you would build your character in, what you would do. Yeah. Um, whereas in D and D, it makes less sense. Like you can, you can. I would like you can pretty much multi-class from day one as a new player, and you're not really going to screw yourself like you will in D and D. Yeah. Um, which is quite quite cool. So it's it's quite a safe environment to really uh, customize experiment and, and play around, and experiment with. The only problem is, it's just you can't. It's difficult to search things up in a book that's like 600 pages big. <laughs> and when you don't have any guidance on doing that, it becomes a real problem. And I found the exact same problem with with the Star Wars game. Um, there's In the Star Wars game, there's actually like three different core rule books. And they're essentially three different tabletop RPGs, but they... they they all link together, play, don't they? You can kind of play all of them at the same time if you want, right? Um, but it makes it really difficult to look stuff up. And even when you have just one of those books, uh, they're quite big. And I was finding it difficult to, to find the specific rules I wanted. Um, and there's some some people online have made some, and this is pretty much all I use now, some really, really good cheat sheets mm-hmm. of, of rules and what you can do. Because of that, I would say the main flaw with the Star Wars RPG is it's it's really, really taxing on the DM in terms of, you are the driver of everything, every yeah. role. You have essentially some sort of creative impetus, some input in every single role that happens because of the, it's not just success or failure, it's success or failure, but also this other special thing can happen or this other special negative thing can happen, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if it's another special positive, positive thing, like the player's role advantage, they decide what happens. But if it's threat and it's a negative thing, the DM has to decide what happens. Yeah. So it's really good to have these cheat sheets that just tell you, okay, here's what how much threat you can spend to have this thing happen, or they drop their lightsaber or, or whatever, right? But that stuff is just not easily accessible in that book at all. So without those, I, I don't think I'd be able to really run the game, probably, to be honest with you. And I, I suspect that it would be similar with, with Pathfinder, especially if you're new um, and it comes to those. I guess... It would be a lot of the education rules, like, oh, no, I've been unseated from my horse. What are the rules <laughs> for that? You know, or uh, stuff like that. And I'm cooking. Are there special rules for cooking or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I did like about it that you did point out that I didn't really realize was as prevalent a system is, is criticals and how every role, whether it be a skill check or I believe even saving throws, um, as well as you know, hitting things can have you critically, critically succeed or critically fail, mm-hmm. and with enhanced effects. And that essentially just works by if you clear the DC by a greater margin, um, then of like five or ex- more. Yeah, this extra effect happens, and I quite like that. That is something I'd like to see transition over to D and D because there are some versions of that in D and D because there are like. Um, for example, there are there are creatures that use fails that way. So, like if you you take a hit and if you get if you fail of it by five or uh, by yeah, if you so say the DC is twelve, if you get 
five less than 12 or more you you mm. you have this extra effect that happens there are versions of that but i've never seen that the other way for succeeding in D. no no yes it's always um sort of presented to the player as a as a negative yeah which is uh, a bit of a shame because i think i used to w- uh, watch these guys on uh, YouTube who were doing like a, an actual play and they had, this was back in second edition days mm. and they had like a house rule where if you cleared the DC by five or more, you would, you would create problem was they, they, they would often, you often do clear the DC by five or more um, a lot of the yes. time. So you, they just end up being a bit too much critical, but I think you could probably fine tune it and it, it makes sense. I like the idea that if you're a powerful character, if you come across low level creatures, you don't just beat them, but you completely annihilate them. Mm-hmm. That sort of feeds that power fantasy again and gives a good juxtaposition of where you were a few levels ago and where you were now. It, yeah. it demonstrates your, your growth in a more substantial way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, something to, to play around with. Um, yeah, There's certainly a lot so. in, in Pathfinder 2 that, that could transfer across very well, and there's lots of people doing it, and there's lots of um, useful threads and information on, on how to take some of the rules and, and put them across, so definitely worth a look. Indeed, yeah, and, and you should check out that um, that Talking 20 video. It's a, it's a decent one. I think it's Talking 20. It might be taking, but if you Google both, you'll find it, <laughs> just to be safe. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of rules and and D and D and books and and RPGs in general, mm-hmm. shall we talk about a new book? Well, Benjamin, oh. what book would that be? Well, uh, there is a very nice uh, DM's Guild book that came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Now it's been out for for at least a week and a half. Uh, called Elminster's Candlekeep Companion. It's currently sitting at the number one. Uh, is it number one best-selling or number one newest selling? One of those, a uh, most popular or yeah, most popular, number one most popular. It's the it's a gold bestseller, and uh, it is uh, well, it's very very good, Joe. I mean, I've been I've been pouring over it to be honest, um, and I know you've been having a look into it too. Uh, it's written by a whole host of people, but the exciting part with it being titled Elminster's Candlekeep Companion is that. Ed Greenwood, Elminster himself, effectively, was on the designing team for the book. So, very nice if you are uh, a bit of a lore junkie like me, but also adds lots of mechanical stuff for min-maxers like Joe. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I've been mischaracterised there in a, in a sense. But yeah, it has got a lot of... Um, interesting mechanical flair to it that i wasn't really expecting from just mm. kind of like a, a law book if you will but yeah it's got a lot of stuff i mean it's got subclasses it's got spells and, and magic items, items and sort of yeah should we talk about the law first and then get into the mechanical stuff let's do it Okay, so for those that aren't aware, if you haven't spent a lot of time in Faerun or the Forgotten Realms, Candlekeep is a library the size of a city, basically. And this whole book is based on fleshing out that that area of the world. Um, it is just south of Baldur's Gate on the Sword Coast, uh, as is most of the stuff in 5th edition is on the Sword Coast, let's face it. And uh, it's, it's really, really cool. I mean, you may have come across it if you've played... Uh, Descent into Avernus because a section of 
the adventure takes place in Candlekeep, very small section. Um, and actually, there is an adventure to go alongside uh, Descent in this book, written by uh, one of the guys who's done a lot of stuff on DM's Guild for for Descent. So another little bonus for you there if you're planning on running that game. But the main thing is that this book goes into, firstly, how the library came to be and why, um, the uh, importance of it, and then the people that that run it, the monks, the avowed, uh, and what you can find inside. Um, Joe, have you, you have you ever been to Candlekeep? Uh, I mean, I've I've popped in before, mm-hmm. yeah, um, for a moment or two. Uh, I can't say my experience was particularly positive. Oh, um, yeah, no, it was uh, unfortunately security was an issue at mm-hmm. the time. Uh, there was some red priests who had to, you know, unfortunately murder on the roof. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some sort of dangerous summoning going on. There was a lot of darkness spells going on. My friend nearly jumped off the roof. He actually wanted to jump off mm. afterwards. He was in a he was in a bit of a bad way. He had just been fingered to death. Yeah, uh, that's nasty. As bad as it sounds, that is as nasty. bad as it sounds. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. All in all, Ben, um, if I had to pop on the old TripAdvisor, I would say don't go back, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, not that's, that's not a great review. Um, but I suppose that what, that's what happens when you go to a uh, an offshoot of the library and not, not the main building itself. It's not as not as greatly maintained, I suppose. Uh, I have been to, to Candlekeep proper because <laughs> I'm just that good. You know, they let me in. It's fine. Um, and have spent uh, a good a good 10 day there. Um, and it, the, the rules are strict, Joe. I'll tell you that. They are... Um, you got you got to do as you're told, mate. Otherwise, you are not allowed in. And uh, effectively, you, you get to the door, and there's these five monks, uh, the avowed members of the avowed. Uh, one of them will talk to you and will uh, review your gift because you must uh, give the library a book from which they do not already have to enter. Um, that can be, and and uh, the companion that we've got here does go into some options. That could be a whole new book, or it could be um, a new edition of a book they already have, or maybe uh, a similar condition but in better state. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. Uh, there'll be the other four monks there watching you from afar and ready to uh, to end your life should you bring any evil into Candlekeep's walls. And really, that's the first. Uh, that's the that's the first boundary to get an inmate yeah yeah no that makes i mean that makes a lot of sense you know you gotta, you gotta bring something to the table i don't remember what my character brought to the table i think um, your your companion had a uh an affinity to the illithid language and had uh, transcribed a lot of uh, stuff that he'd come across um, and offered that up yeah, it's like a group gift, you know, a gift from the group. Yeah, and you um, can do that. You can offer a, a one single book for an adventuring band or a party. Um, and uh, there's a really nice section in this companion uh, detailing like what that would mean for you as a party and, and what that gift is and, and how the how the monks would question you and uh, and maybe they might turn you away and what would happen if they did turn you away and what would happen if you, you didn't then leave. Um so there's there's lots of stuff there for before you even get into uh, I was going to say the four walls but it's much bigger than that. Hmm. There's Yeah, and it's it's interesting when you look at the monks as well because um well, we'll get into it in a bit but their their stat blocks are not what you would expect. No. 
No. So the avowed are the, the, the well, they're all the the whole monk monastery kind of gathering. The group of them are called the avowed, but they are broken up into a number of uh, different hierarchies. Um, so uh, let me just see. I want to make sure I get it right because I'm currently looking at some character options. Here we go. Uh, so you have the uh, where is it? Joe, do you remember while I'm looking for it? Uh, that's going to be a no, Ben. I'm just sitting on the, <laughs> just sitting on the magic items page yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was delegated to me, Ben. The, the law was delegated to you. Um, <laughs> so please, if you, just, if you just do your job, that would be, wow. be great. Wow. Okay, mate. Okay. Um, okay. So they're broken up into a number of different uh, uh, titles. So you'd think of them, best way is to think of them as a, as a faction, uh, really, um, because you can join the Avowed. You've got uh, the highest member, there can only be one, um, and they are the first reader, I believe. Below that is, um, or, or kind of online with the first reader, is another high up. Uh, Oh, there's not really a name for them because they're monks they're not like the second reader no it's not the second reader but what I'm saying the is third. <laughs> we'll get there don't worry but what I mean is like they're not like they're not like they're not a government they're not like lords or, or nobles so they don't really ha their titles are what they are if that makes sense um, yeah it's more of a pragmatic approach to uh, titling yeah so there's these two up top who sort of butt heads all of the time because they they're what makes them good for their role are so opposed to each other that they really only work together when they absolutely have to. Um, and they are sort of in charge. Their word is law in Candlekeep and, it, you know, they will be doing what they, they must to make sure things are always going well. Um, the lowest form of the list are the seekers and they are people who come to counterkeep like the adventurers who want to uh, learn or study or maybe even join the ranks of the avowed because that is something that you can do um so just by being let into the door you are you are effect effectively then a seeker you that is your name that's who you are um you're not a member of the avowed yet but you are welcome and sometimes seekers are allowed to come and go um they mm. can they can you stay for 10 days uh but you you may be allowed to come back without presenting another gift when you're there um above the seekers are the scribes they're monks who are responsible for like the the copying of the existing books of producing new books um or by publishing books because counterkeep does publish a set of books kind of like a, a like a collection um each I think it's two a year and they are sold for uh, up, upwards of 100 gold, which sounds like a lot for a book, but collectors buy them and then sell them on for much more. And that's how the money is made. So the scribes sort of do all of the... So there's a ho there's a horrible scalpers market going on here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're telling me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There always is somewhere. Uh, but they, they do all of this sort of menial kind of tasks, um, but slightly higher than the seekers. Seekers who have joined the avowed would do like the cooking and cleaning kind of tasks. The scribes do all of the copying and knowledge kind of tasks. Um, then you've got the master reader. Um, there are a few individuals uh, who reach that rank there they have so much knowledge in written or spoken language or maybe in arcane phrases um 
that they are rumoured to be able to hear or read a sentence and recall the author title uh, of the book and where what page the sentence appears on like they've got so much knowledge they've spent so long in the in the books that they just know them um then there's the great reader now there's eight of these and there's never more than eight and when one goes uh, another will come up and fill that spot and they have uh, different roles different jobs um there are three specific jobs that they will share and these readers are are chosen based on merit and their contributions to the library so you really have to dedicate your life to candlekeep to ever get up to this this high high point um the gate warden is responsible for security and defense uh, the guide is responsible for overseeing the development of uh, the curriculum to train acolytes to, to join the, the monks and the avowed and then there's the chanter who leads this march that the the avowed go into and this is a i won't get too deep because there's a lot of law here that you'll get in the book if you pick it up um or maybe win a copy more on that later uh <laughs> hook and tease <laughs> the chant um is constantly going on throughout candlekeep and it is quite literally a bunch of monks chanting and they are chanting the yet to be fulfilled prophecies of one of the first people to come to candlekeep not the not the founder which is often misquoted but one of the first people who came and and helped build up the sort of fame of of the building so when you're there you're always hearing this chant rolling off the the built the building's walls and echoing around that'd do you nothing wouldn't it It well they say that once you've spent so much time there you kind of just drown it out um Mm but yeah you're just trying to get a bit of reading in you've got, <laughs> you got this old monk it's like day four on the job you know what i mean so he's, like, really, he's really trying to impress and he's absolutely wailing you know and you're he's just really like, going for that prophecy about the owlbear today he really wants it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you just hate a job's worth like that you know i know I mean? honestly nightmare just just like stop for a breath every now and then you know <laughs> there are some buildings within candlekeep that where the walls are thicker so that you can sort of escape it so <laughs> yeah. one of the um there's only a set, set amount of places that seekers are allowed into when they're bought in for the first time um and they're not really allowed anywhere else until they join the avowed um, one of those is like, kind of like a tavern like an inn where they can wash hopefully and sleep and eat and those walls are thicker there to give you like a break so you can rest um, and there are reading rooms as well which i would imagine have some slightly thicker walls um then you've got the first reader as we mentioned they're the most charismatic and articulate they seem to be most knowledgeable their responsibility is to govern the great library they oversee maintenance they oversee um you know all the important stuff and they are only second to the keeper of tomes um and they're the one that's the one that's in charge that they i've got it wrong before um I'm, i'm okay to admit that they their word is absolute law um they will write down um edicts and they'll be recorded and enshrined in law and then that law can only be nullified by another keeper so like obviously they change over time um so if another keeper came in and said no that law's silly we're going to get rid of it then it would go away but otherwise it's always there um the keeper of tomes uh, they they govern the avowed and candle keep 
to ensure that basically any knowledge that comes in is contained and it's preserved and the idea is that it will always be preserved for all eternity so once it's in those walls it will never be forgotten there's no there's not going to be fall of babylon or anything here this is always going to be safe um so they it's 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 interesting because the like this is the sort of law with all these different characters and i really like it when a faction has a, a clear defined hierarchy and and reasoning behind each role in that overall structure because yeah it's not it's not something you would necessarily you know just read off to your players like like we're doing here but it's something that if you just uh, if you follow these rules to a t and you have all your npcs um stick to this hierarchy and behave in a way that um is kind of synonymous with a a monk organization that would that would behave this way right that has these rules and structures to sort of bind them and um, like like you say with the the chanting and everything mm-hmm. like that when you have a, a group of player characters come along and they and they spend an extended period of time in in candlekeep yeah they may not understand the uh the minutiae of every different role within this organization and what they do but the fact that this is going on all the time and if you're just dropping in tidbits as a dm of oh you see this person they're dressed this way they're doing this thing mm-hmm. or whenever a player is interacting with one of these characters they're behaving in a way that is representative of their role and their and then ultimately their beliefs because these people are obviously very committed to these very difficult jobs mm. so how is that going to determine their their character and their their flair um i think what that does is it just creates a real sense of of realism and and depth to the place like it has been here for a very long time yeah i think the more because these rules and roles and what these people do they're very cemented they've been around for a long time and i think if you can ingrain that into your world and like i say it's not a case of just oh i'm this secret i do this you know let me tell you about it for five minutes you know (laughs) when when you've asked me an irrelevant question you know like but if you just keep describing you know just background characters around oh you see a person that they're doing this this person in red is doing that okay i've associated that this person in the red robes keeps doing the same different thing and he's different from all these other people like that will just subconsciously pour into the player's mind and you get this degree of consistency and then what you can do as a, a dm is then shake it up when there's a break in this consistency one of the monks is behaving odd because you know he's actually possessed by a devil or whatever you know yeah he's opened Um, one of the the chain books like you can do it very subtly and the players will pick up on it because it's a break from this established norm and this this depth it's something that's um going to stand out very much from all these other characters that are very much within their role and i think that's the benefit you have in a especially in a, an environment like candle keep it's like an island so the players are spending sort of it's like its own mini campaign in a way when you spend some time there yeah what's really nice as well is that this companion actually gives some really um concise ways to do that so some nice little things that you could show off some examples of like the characters are moving from you know one room to a reading room and on their travel they might see xyz and those examples are really good ways to put that storytelling in without doing that espousing so if you struggle with that kind of thing there are some really good examples in here of of ways to do that and do it do it well as well Mm. 
so there's sure. there is a lot lot more um lore into the different levels and um i mean when you read it you kind of think like oh i could i could do a whole campaign just about like going through the ranks of candlekeep but really uh, and the book does go into this an adventure in candlekeep is going to be very different from a normal kind of adventure and um it actually does say at one point you should probably think more of candlekeep as uh, a means to an end it's not the destination it's somewhere they have to go to get information to get to the destination because life is so set in these routines and these ways that actually running an adventure where you're like i want to start as a seeker and eventually become a great reader it's like well you're gonna be doing a lot of chores and a lot of writing and not much actual adventuring Um, but it is hypothetically possible it could be one of those cool places where a character goes to retire you know Mm. um and uh, with that being kind of I don't want to go too deeply on, on the different roles. Um, there are lots of different pieces of info about different parts of Candlekeep as well. So as I said earlier, there are um, only a few areas that adventurers or people visiting would actually get to go. Um, and it lies li- um, lines all of those out for you. And they're very simple because the, the, the avowed and the monks are very... Uh, very protective of their knowledge they've spent millennia building it up um they're very protective about uh people holding books and which ones they're holding so they wouldn't actually give you uh the the original they're very precious about copying texts if you want a text copied an avowed will do it not you um things like mm. that they it's all very uh, it's all thought out and very very ruled so that the monks have control of what information is leaving and, and coming in and um that's very important when you get into places like looking at the um catacombs and the under underside of candlekeep where all of the um really really dark stuff's kept um you know there are books that hold evil secrets because candlekeep aren't they, they don't have the avowed don't have an alignment they don't do things for good or for evil they preserve knowledge for the betterment of everybody and then if someone comes in and they get through the vetting pro- process to go in and look at a book and they ask to see something that i don't know holds the secret on killing a god i don't know that's the only thing that came to mind you know they might not find the direct secret of okay here's a to abc how you kill a god they might find well it's rumored that this person who lived in this area once did it and then that's like oh we've got a bit of knowledge to go and help us if the avowed say right well or they think well if they get this knowledge they might go and do something evil and kill a really good aligned god they won't give you the information because they're not there to help and abet evil characters but at the same time they're not going to turn away evil texts does that make sense yeah they're all about keeping every bit of knowledge they can in so you know if the book of vile darkness passed through their walls they'd be like hell yeah that's that's a a powerful ancient magical artifact we'd we want this but they're not going to just give it out to anybody (laughs) not gonna let you copy it (laughs) I mean that's fair enough. You, you don't want your, your ancient artifacts, you know, being being plagiarized, being mm. being copied as such, because they become a little bit less artifacting in a way. It's not, you know? not very good, is it, for the uh, f- for the sale price of the book if there's like fifty thousand copies of it out there? I mean that's just like a lesson in all 
legendary items and whatnot. You know, there should only be one of each, really. Makes it yeah. a bit more special. Especially artifacts. Um, one thing as well about libraries that always stresses me out, and uh, to be honest about bookshelves, when characters meet a bookshelf, they go, oh, I want to see what books are on this bookshelf. I'm going to pick one up. What's the title? And I'm like, oh, Christ, now I've got to come up with a book. Um, there's a really nice D100 table of books that you can use in here. Um, one of them is Velo's Guide to Monsters. That's fun. Uh, because that book does exist in the world, um, in, in D&D. Uh, books like The Flowing Light of Divinity and uh, The Treasure Tales of the Sword Coast, which are all kind of, not nothing books, but they're like little extras that could be hooks to other adventures and things, which is really, really fun. Mm. Um, so there's there's lots here. There's the Great Library. There's, oh, I didn't even mention the towers. One of the towers has a has a ship on the top of it and and a, an, a necromatic crew living on it which is really weird and fun there's um th- there's also different ways the towers work and it goes into w- how they work and why they might throw the characters off because they're like a I, maze I, of interconnected I this is titles. like a, this is like a very common theme i think with forgotten realms and especially mm. sword coast adventures and that area of the map is that i find that obviously this is not necessarily a a wizards of the coast product but it's you know it's based on a wizards of the uh, of the coast you know place uh, forgotten realms place Mm -hmm. and it uses their law it's a common theme with all these different places is that they they use kind of juxtaposition to to make things more interesting, you always have an aspect of an environment or place that shouldn't be there or that is very mm-hmm. out of place, but yeah. it's there anyway. Um, and it's sort of used to kind of confuse, but also kind of beguile the the players into into being invested. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it, and it does work, you know, like you have, okay, we've got this library, but there's a ship on it. Why? Wow. <laughs> Go find out, you know, like yeah. there's a way, you know, okay, you own a bar, but it has a ghost barman. Ooh. You know, there's, a, there's always something with just a little bit of flair. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, it's just a, a common style I've noticed throughout um, a lot of the Wizards of the Coast writing and obviously the stuff that's inspired by that mm. is it just always has this this little kicker on the end uh, yeah. just to just to pull things out of their own stereotype and just twist them a little bit and, it, and it's quite fun it, like I say it often um, works to just give that place its own um, unique identity it turns a, just a normal library into the you know a place with with a twist mm-hmm. you know it, it's kind of it's kind of fun like um the, the yawning portal it's like it's a it's an inn but it has a big hole in the ground that goes to a dungeon yeah you know, like it's just this little uh, little other thing um and it gives it gives the places a lot of character yeah and i think it's something you could you know you can take into your own um games i i, ge- I generally i like in my games i i like to do that but to a less um not a less obvious degree, but a, a less extreme degree. I don't want the juxtaposition to be as as wide yeah. across. Um, but that's more of like a stylistic choice than a, a better or worse one. But it's just an, an interesting you know, observation I, I, I made on how these places generally sort of 
come into existence, I suppose. Yeah. The last thing I'll mention before we move on to some of the uh, more mechanical stuff is um, for you, Joe, being a, a roguey thief at the moment, you might think, well, I'm only allowed in certain areas, but I want to break in and look around. How do I do that? There's some really nice rules on, on how and what might happen. Um, one of those interesting things is these transition locations. So um, when you move from one area to another, you'll, you'll have to move through one of these transition areas. They can be landmarks like um, the Howling Well, or they could be uh, bridges and hallways that are um, all look and act different ways or interesting doors that um, like uh, by turning this crystalline doorknob, the wall opens to reveal a blue portal to a tower within the library fortress. And then you're in one of those towers and they all act differently. So it's a really fun place where you could just get lost and then get told off by the avowed and kicked out because they caught you. Yeah, it, it seems like it's a fun place just to to wander and, and and break the rules a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, me like I say, as a as a thief kind of character, I'd be interesting in what I can I can sort of nab, hmm. you know, and and uh, pilfer off said island, um, which I suspect is probably you know harder than it harder than it looks. Um, I mean, does it say much in the book about how you get there and don't get there? Or like... Yeah, so so Cannel Keep itself isn't really an island. It's more of a... Um, it's it's kind of on the very edge of, of the coastline. So it, it drops off into the, the Sea of the Swords. So you mm. head down the um, the main road, which I, f- I forget the name of, um, as if you're leaving... If you leave Waterdeep or if you leave Baldur's Gate, you head south. And as if you're heading towards... Uh, where is it? Is it Nifarel, I think? Um and there is a road off of that main road, the main road that everyone uses, that is solely to go to and from Candlekeep. Uh, so it is off on its side, um, on its own. And, and if you're using that road, you're going to Candlekeep. There's nothing in between the main road and Candlekeep. It's just that's if you're going there, that's where you're going. Um, so you can literally just travel up to there. Uh, but the, the difficulty isn't getting there. The difficulty is being let in and um, and then getting what you want out of it because you have to have that book or that that piece of knowledge you have to be judged by the avowed who are on on guard duty that day and they have to make sure that you've got the right reasons to be in and and all these different hurdles once you're in then great you're in and and welcome what would you like to know but that that getting in is the difficult bit um so you know and there are secret ways to get into candlekeep uh there's a rumor that uh, in the blackstaff tower kelbrin orison had a teleportation portal um there's uh one that's quite fun out near elterel there's a rock where if you uh touch it and say the right thing in the right way at the right time you can teleport into the great library uh, so there's these weird little secret entrances that people have built um a long time ago that still exist but people don't know about um but even so if the city for some reason has activated its defense mechanisms then you're not getting in and you're not getting out they have one they have many defense priorities for for stopping things from coming in and there have been a number of incursions on candlekeep over the years uh, which you can read about in the book but one of their main things is this giant ward that literally is like this force field around the city and once it's activated the only things that can get through it are air uh, water and sound so hmm. you know once once you're in there <laughs> you're not getting out if that's activated <laughs> But all that stuff is is in this book. So if you wanted to to read up on all that stuff, it is in here, um, and it's really interesting. I like I like stuff like that, uh, and there's little bits of flair. Like I was just reading through the um, 
the the table for the random books you can just sort of pluck off the shelf and there's a bunch of interesting ones in there i like that especially sort of the higher the role is the more kind of unique and special the book is and a lot of them have just just a little hook on the end there something that the dm can expand on um if he if he so wishes but just little things like here's a, a small snippet on creating magic items so the dm could say that and then the play, you know, and then you can just gauge off the players do they ask more about it if not then maybe they're not too bothered but if they ask more and then maybe that's a bit of a quest to create a magic item or or something like that it's interesting there's a the probably the coolest one on there was it's like a rod that uh, if you have to be a warlock and when you touch it, it essentially spawns a book that you can read. But you need to be able to read Celestial, uh, Abyssal, and I don't know, one other one. So you need to read all three languages to fully understand the context. And it's essentially like at the start of a quest to find a, a powerful warlock magic item. So th those are little fun things that you can just spruce in there. And they're, they're non-intrusive. Yeah. In a, in a way that you're not forcing or pressing the this sort of hook or quest starter onto the player. For one, they've picked up the book, so it's they've been the the impetus to get this thing started. But it's just enough detail in there, to, and just vague enough that the DM can expand on it in their own way. But it's just a little quest that you can gauge if your players are interested or not. And um, I suspect, you know... It, you know, if the warlock picks up that book, they're going to be quite interesting. I love the idea that you can almost tease it. You can, okay, we read two of the three languages, so you've got a rough idea, but you need to learn this third language, and, and now they're running off trying to get a comprehend languages spell or whatever. Um, I could really see someone who's invested doing that. Um, and, you know, war, war, warlock doesn't want a special warlock magic item. Well, there, exactly. So. Uh, before we get into the character classes and stuff, um, the the whole of chapter four is about building adventures in Candlekeep, and there's some really comprehensive ideas and and themes and things that you can you can put to good use and, and how to really use Candlekeep as a location. Uh, because as I said earlier, they mentioned about it being kind of a, a means to an end. You don't you don't go there as the destination really. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff in there, as well as that really nice Baldur's Gate. Uh, Descending to Avernus Adventure by M.T. Black, uh, which I've had a read through. I didn't get too deep into it because I know that um, I'm playing in it as a player and my DM likes to grab as much stuff off of DM's Guild about what uh, Descending to Avernus as he can. So I had a quick peruse and it, it looks very nice. It gives an, uh, another way for the players to enter into Avernus um, rather than what's presented in the adventure. So that's really nice too. Um, but I, won't, I don't want to go too deep into that because that's all about building adventures and things and, and you get all of that in this book if you read through chapter four hmm. so should we look at the uh, character options next oh, we certainly can Benjamin we certainly can uh, which chapter is that I've got to find it I'm scrolling through my PDF uh, that'll, that, that'll be chapter one but the, uh, one, the there it is got it. okay so we've got subclasses for a bard cleric monk and wizard who would you like to look at first well, I want to start with the wizard because it's kind of interesting that essentially the the main thrust it looks like of this entire subclass is expanding your essentially list of known spells or and, and memorize spells. Um, it's quite cool. Like the most powerful, well, the level fourteen, the capstone of this instant preparation. Essentially, you can 
recall obscure spells in the time of need you use your spell pool feature which is this kind of other feature which you can pull from to get spells um, attempting to immediately prepare a spell make an intelligence arcana check um, if you're playing this sub of class obviously you want to be proficient in arcana yeah i mean a, you're a wizard uh, an obvious there uh, um, and, and you can do it as a bonus action instead of an action so essentially you could at that point recall a spell and essentially any spell you have the spell level to, to be able to cast even if you don't memorize it, it's not in your spell book whatever um, as a bonus action and then immediately cast it as uh, as an action in a turn which is quite handy when you come across come up against something really um very counterable i suppose you know you, you you come up against the fire elemental you you desperately need that tidal wave and now you can you know Pull, yeah. you just pull it out of your ass essentially I you know? really like the spell pool feature and there is a stat block for a, a wizard with, with the spell pool feature in the bottom of this book at the end of it that you can put up against um, your, your parties which is really interesting because it's it, this ability to be able to, to just say I've I mean the, the, the class is called academic law so it's like I've read so much about spells that even though I haven't prepared it and even though I've not got it written on me right now I, I know it and I can I can if I just remember it right if I can just get the phrasing that's it and then you can cast it something about that is really uh, I just I love that so much the other thing that I really like about this is the second level feature uh, secrets of uh, Dwemer craft now um i don't know the the actual definition of Dwemer, but it's it's kind of like magical like a, a Dwemer is a magical effect i think so basically what these are are warlock invocations but for wizards mm-hmm. and i just i i the i don't know why we've never seen anything like that before that idea really excites me um and there are some really cool interesting things so you can um some of them feed directly back into the class like uh i think it's the is it the burning chant uh yeah when you use your magical theorist feature you can change the damage of of what it is so you know that feeds directly into what you can do as an academic law wizard but then there are other ones like uh which one was i going to tell you about uh weakening flourish when you cast a spell that requires a saving throw you can change the saving throw from its normal ability score to constitution if the spell um does not have already have somatic components it gains one as you make a flourish so you can change the the saving throw if you know that uh, you've been fighting a creature for like a good five minutes and you think oh, i've realized they're bad at con fine i'll use my weakening flourish feature um you know or uh, resonant syllable when you use your magic theorist you can change to thunder damage or well, there's the whispers of the shadow wave you can change it to necrotic damage so there's all these different little um build your own wizard kind of things that you can just pop on top which i love I like it because it enhances what the wizard is already really good at, which is um, variety, essentially. Mm. And it gives you so much flexibility in your answers to problems. And you don't, it's not just enhancing you in a way where, okay, you answer this problem by being more powerful. Um, it's no, you have a specific counter to this scenario. You have, I like the idea that essentially this wizard will always have the tool they need, you know. For whatever problem they come across and that's a, a very wizardy thing to do in my opinion yeah and um, i think i think that's what draws me to like the spell pool so much yeah yeah no it's a very interesting um yeah it's just an, in, an interesting way to go with the wizard it's 
and it's I think it's pretty well balanced. It's not too um, extreme. The fact that you can only it costs, you know, there's an action economy cost to doing it, and uh, it's not something you can do all, all the time. It's um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, talking about these subclasses, I find the monk is kind of interesting from a, a law perspective. Yes. Um, basically, the way of the uh, avowed preserver. It's not too particularly strong, in my opinion. Like, at third level, you, you basically get access to some spells that you can cast spending key points, which is interesting. The idea being your... that you you have been part of the Avowed, and that's your monastery, basically. Yeah, uh, but I like the idea that... So, for instance, you can cast um, Silence as one of your spells. I love the idea that the Avowed is just trying to get some reading done but the chanting's doing his head in so he just drop, just drops the silence you know just to get away from it for a little while that so that it's got little law flavory bits in there there's some interesting stuff where you can teleport around which is pretty cool i i, I really like the fact that at 17th level the capstone you essentially for a big key cost can just cast foresight yeah turn actually makes the monk really quite strong again at, uh, in those later levels where I think generally the monk as a class is waning quite a lot at that point um, you know having advantage on everything being very defensive it just it's it's I think it's the buff that the uh, the monk needs yeah and I think if I get the if I was to get this at 17th level I'd be casting you know I'd have foresight I'd have the, enough key points to drop my foresight all the time you know whenever I need it for that big fight so that's really fun um the cleric class is a prophecy domain so it's all about um almost like seeing into the future and or reading those prophecies and then fulfilling them and there's some really interesting flavorful stuff around the abilities um using like you know like oh i i'm i'm going to i know that i'm going to do this thing it's written so and so i will do it and then you do and you can implement that kind of thought and that that role play into everyday items as well as like big epic prophecies which is really fun yeah i like i I just like how these subclasses obviously they're very thematically appropriate for counter keep itself but they have they meet the the mechanics merge with the themes quite well you know they're what what they're trying to go for it's, there's no disconnect between the abilities you have and themes, and that, but it's also on par with the power increases you should be getting at those levels. Um, I, I just because I always find a lot of these special subclasses, even you know a lot of the official wizard subclasses um, or the UA ones, that they just never get the balance right. You know, there's always a. I never want to feel that I'm being punished for taking a more abstract or unique subclass or something that very fits the theme of my character well but I'm being punished because it's actually not the optimal class not the optimal option to take at this point you know I don't like you know I won't feel um, you know I I suppose there are some examples there um, you know like Warlock you know okay it's really thematic me for for me to take a great old one uh, subclass and it really works with my kind of eldritch um, HP Lovecraft background I'm going for but 
I really probably should just uh, take the fighter subclass and get some medium armor, you know, and <laughs> and get a special magic sword because it's kind of better. This is why I think you, as a DM, you should be able to incorporate things like learning new proficiencies into your game more often in downtime activities. And it's something that I've been able to implement in Waterdeep a lot because you've got so much downtime. But the ability to go off and learn new proficiencies and learn new things is... Um, is so powerful into allowing that fantasy around class builds and there is some stuff in this book as well on how to do that um there's uh there's a book you can get that that teaches you a new proficiency but you have to have it on you and you have to study it every month to keep it yeah i mean i, I think that's a good way of doing it i mean i think that was just a problem as well like the hexblade uh, example is just a fact that they already made a class that was not uh, matching up to the others so then you put in a subclass to boost it but then everything that's come before them then becomes slightly obsolete same similar thing happened with i think the ranger all, all these anthos subclasses are just better for the most part than the standard ranger subclasses um, but these sort of going back to this book these subclasses they all fit in a way they all fit in their their own kind of box they they fulfill what they're trying to fulfill but they don't encroach on anything else and they have enough in them mechanically that I would think, okay, I, I would still want to pick this, you know, and I wouldn't feel like I was losing out on anything by committing hard to this specific theme. Um, so it's just, it just, it's, it's just a feel good thing for me when I, I see a subclass like that. Shall we talk about magic items? We certainly should. I know it's your favorite part. I do enjoy a good magic item. Um, I'll let you go first, and you, you tell me tell me what's caught your eye. Well, uh, there's a few different ones, Ben. Uh, you know, I, I, I like a good weapon. You know, it's just something that uh, excites me. Um, for some reason, the, the weapons and things they always just I'm always more interesting in them than I am the the really abstract, special, wondrous items. Um, I guess it's just because they. They feel very thematic to me. But this is a cool one. So, the weapon of chrono omission, I guess. Uh, I'm just going to say that's what it's called. What page are you um, on? Uh, 57. Okay. Um, but what's cool about this item, so it's a magic item. It can be plus one, plus two, plus three, depending on how rare it is and I guess what level you are in the campaign and whatnot. Chronal omission, um, yeah. But what it can do is it essentially... You can hit people so hard, knock them through time, <laughs> which is exciting. It's an exciting concept. Um, so, you know, I say, it, you know, it can be a plus two or whatever. It, it does a bit of extra damage. You stick an extra um, force damage on there. But what's interesting is you can essentially hit someone. They do a charisma saving throw. So similar to like a banishment save, it's that sort of theme. Um, and if you hit them, you just knock them forward to their next turn, essentially. So they lose out on their turn um, in what they can do, and it's it's just brilliant. <laughs> it's just so thematically, like, yes, this works. Yeah, something really cool about this weapon. I mean, obviously, it could be a, it could be a sword, it could be an axe, whatever. Um, it is that if you score a critical hit, you can choose to deal either the extra one d eight or you can regain an expended charge, which is really cool. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And it's it's a cool ability because, and it's something you can use really tactically in engagement. You're like, okay, I need to prioritize this. I'm going to try and hit the big guy. I'm going to get him out of the action for a minute. We can focus on these these other small people. He'll reappear in a turn or so. Then we can focus on them. I love the idea as well. And there are a few different items that have this similar effect. But it's all of these items that mix with time. The person who's being manipulated, they have no concept of what's happened. For them, no time has passed at all. They just appear there as if there's just been a jump, like a, a missing void in their own memory, um, which I think is uh, just a fun, flavorful way of doing it. I mean, I like the idea of an NPC survives this sort of thing, and they're like extremely confused as to as to what's happened. Um, and there's for me again. It makes sense here. You can do it a, a number of times for the number of charges you've got. It, it's limited. Um, it's very similar to a spell in uh, Explorer's Guide to uh, Wild Mount, which obviously, again, has a lot of time manipulation stuff in it. But again, I think the problem with that is that the spell was just a little bit too... It wasn't powerful enough for the level it was being cast at, so it was not something I would necessarily use very much. But this is why I love magic items. You can have a magic item that if it was a spell effect or a class feature or whatever would be somewhat underwhelming but because it's just an add-on you're just bolting it onto the edge of your your abilities anyway because it's a magic item it's just an extra the power level doesn't really matter you know it's just uh, something more for you there's no downside to having it other than oh I need to use an attunement slot so I think that's why you can be much more flavorful and unique in your um effects you have on magic items that's why i you know i really like them i think they add a lot to to a player's makeup and, and, and character and again you don't feel any bad or regret from taking these like you maybe would a certain class feature or whatever like i say it's very flavorful but it's not you know it's subpar at least for me i wouldn't enjoy that but when it's magic items it doesn't really matter you know because you just get what the dm presents you with you know and it's a fun way of doing it so i thought that was a really good one and it's a you know it's a very powerful attack it's a similar one where there's an armor here where if you get hit and it's not quite as strong but you can essentially um you re you delay the damage you're going to take um so when you get hit by something you gain 2d10 plus 10 temporary hit points and um which basically then takes that damage but it, it's like you're delaying the damage for the future so if you were hit with something that was going to kill you you could say okay uh, i'm just going to shunt that damage into the future into a round into the future so it gives you another round to play knowing that damage is coming and it might even give you the opportunity to drink a potion or whatever and, and survive it, which I think is pretty fun. But it's like you're marked for death <laughs> at that point, right? You, you know that damage is coming. And I love the idea of thematically, like a, a big, say like uh, someone just smacked you with a hammer, right? But it has no effect. It's just like, you know, it's like a little nerf dart. And then a round later, you get flung flying across the room. Kind of like in an anime <laughs> when you get a hit and then there's that delay and then they go flying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I just, I think that's a, you know, it's just a brilliant way to, um, 
to flavor you know to give it flavor and we should say as well the art in this book is gorgeous the artists have done um amazing work the art of that armor is lovely and this art uh, this armor this item is one of the many that comes with a whole um load of history so this is uh armor that belongs to arch sorcerer torth who was once uh centuries ago a first reader of candlekeep and there's a whole side box on on his story and and the armor and and what it means and so you can really add this impactful flavorful item into your into your world and have the characters you know experience it and they could find this anywhere maybe it was stolen from candlekeep centuries ago and your party find it on adventuring and now they have a reason to return to candlekeep to return the armor but in the meantime they get to use it i mean i it's funny you talk about the art like the one theme i've noticed of all the art i don't know if it was all done by the same person everyone has massive pecs (laughs) just the hugest of pecs (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, they, um, everyone is just benching hard on, on Candle Keep. The art is by a guy called Bob. Uh, now, forgive me, Bob. Bob Gravenstein. Um, so he did the uh, the cover art and I think all of the interior art. So Bob Bob likes his pecs, mate. Yeah, and uh, I, I can't blame him. Then. It looks fantastic. It does look fantastic. Um, there are also some really nice uh, artifacts in here. Um, I think artifacts don't come up enough in D and D games, um, mainly because they, I think, they have to be like high level stuff. But there's some really nice ones, as well as some sentient magic items too, um, which we've talked about at length before and and love using. So um, yeah, lots of of just options and variety. In, in what you can present your players with I do like one of the um, <laughs> one of the uh, artifacts uh, where is it it's a it's I think it's kind of like I think you could build a whole plot around uh, the item on its own it's called the revelation of the apocalypse so it's it's a book it's a pearl white tome with dried blood stains on its cover that contains the prophecy detailing the end of the mortal world written in foul language known as dark speech whoever reads any part of this book dies a horrible death in 1d 12 days unless someone else reads the book during that time yeah that's right it's like you have to constantly pass it around the party yeah. to keep everyone alive which is fun um i mean the only other thing i want to talk about is there's some spells in here and i read through them all um they're quite interesting there's lots of them uh, to be fair there's some paladin spells which i'm happy about um only one i would probably actually use but again it's quite flavorful in terms of uh sort of seeing into the future it's a divination spell which is just you know there's not enough of those anyway yeah. um but uh it's basically foretold smite and it's the effect is similar to a guiding bolt where you give advantage to the next person that hits the creature but the flavor is that when you hit the creature with this smite, you do some damage or whatever, but it's like you get a you get a spark, an aspect of this creature's future that you can then kind of inform to your allies so they know how he's going to move, how he's going to dodge in this next round so they can get that advantage. I love the, the, the justification of that mechanical benefit. Um, so I think that's a really flavorful... Um, thing and I, I love the idea that you know like sort of, yeah, you, if you're a pal and you, and you cast a spell you have to kind of you know damn the creature with a magnificent yeah. magnificent speech you know you need to besmirch its honour when you hit it with this it just seems seems the just thing to do a lot of nice wizard spells as well a lot of nice named ones we get some more uh, Agonizer he gets some mentions in spells and in an item in this book Elminster obviously gets a spell of course he does uh, he has to um, so yeah there's some really nice Gorion, um, as which there's a lot of mention actually about Gorion and Gorion's ward so it 
it goes uh, links into the Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 uh, lore, which is nice. Um, if you've played those games, there's, yeah, there's lots of stuff in here and um, lots of variety, is, I think, is the main theme with the items and the spells. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, there's there's another Paladin one, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think it's probably too high a level, um, to be honest. Um, is his third level, and but, but it's cool because it triggers on a reaction, and it's when you make a like an intimidation or an insight check against a creature, um, and you can essentially roll a, a d10, add the result to the uh, triggering ability. Um, anyone within range must make a con save, and if they're a shape changer, so it's like pretty niche. But if they're or they, if they've been polymorphed or they're under an illusion spell, it just instantly stops working. Um, I, I just like it's, it. I like the idea that the spell just called no more lies. <laughs> yeah, stop it. What are you doing? Yeah. I, I just think that's pretty fun. There's a nice cantrip as well called teleport object, which is uh, which is a lot of fun. You can just make something appear somewhere else, which is nice. Um, and then right at the end of the book, we've got chapter six, friends and foes, which is all those nice little stat blocks that we've mentioned across. You've got some cool little creatures, some cool big creatures, including the spectral dragon that uh, or, or whim uh, that guards part of Candlekeep. And then those uh, those stats of the, um, the the avowed and the the wizards with the spell pools that you can use as well. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, I'm not normally. Um, you know, I'm quite a homebrew guy. I don't generally like to use um, too much. I mean, ironically, as I say, as I was stealing everything at the start of the show. But um, <laughs> for what, I, what I mean is I, I generally don't use a lot of official material. Yeah. But but this is stuff I would pull from, especially the spells, the, um, the magic items, and the stat blocks of monsters. And unlike what I would normally do, which is completely reflavor something, I think a lot of the... Uh, the fluff text you know the law um is so synonymous with what the mechanics do and they meld so nicely there'd be very little reason that i would uh, ever really change it um obviously you know i might rename it from counter keep something else or whatever if I, I needed to but these are this is stuff that i would actually use pretty much unaltered in my own game um which is pretty rare i, I wouldn't normally do that but i think that it thematically it just works and and the meld of that and the mechanics um, in a way that's quite harmonious um, yeah I would definitely just run it pretty much as it is yeah and obviously there's a lot of tie into like Descent into Avernus as we've mentioned but also um, if you're running any of the Sword Coast adventures so I think you're only excluding like the Out of the Abyss Curse of Strahd and um, Tomb of Annihilation maybe Ghost of Saltmarsh if you're you know if you're running any of the other ones that are actually set on the Sword Coast you can you can go and visit Candlekeep it's not that far away so it's a really good book to have um, if if the players ever want to go there and it's a good place for players to know about because if they ever don't know something just go to Candlekeep man mm. yeah so, absolutely um, if you want to get your hands on a copy it is on DM's Guild obviously um but uh, very graciously we've been given four digital copies to give away so i think that's the most amount of books we've ever given away joe in one go <laughs> we're in the big leagues now mate in the big timers uh if you want to grab a copy and delve into this book uh, just head over to our twitter we're going to put a tweet up what we usually do is uh we put the tweet out um about midday uh the day that the episode goes out so if you if you've got on this episode nice and early well done you but uh, you might have to check back it will be there at some point today 
And I know, like, you know, you're always thinking with competitions, like, oh, it's going to be so many people signing up and, you know, the chances are so low that I'm going to win. What's the point? I never win anything. And you're right. It's highly unlikely you will win. But you might. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't know how inspiring that is, Joe. Ben, we've got to be real with these people, okay? Okay. The chances are low, but there's a chance, okay? Yeah. We'll we'll put a tweet out and we'll pin it onto our profile. So it'll be a it'll be a like follow retweet um to go in for the chance. We will open the entries today and uh if you look at all of the um the thread of tweets there'll be all the info on, on when the competition closes and when we'll announce the winner. Um uh yeah, go and grab it. Go and go and like and retweet and stuff because I mean four copies is is a lot. There's a significant chance you could win there. Look, and everyone we've ever, you know, who's ever won a competition we've run in the past has always said, I can't believe it. I never thought it would be me. You know, yeah. that could be you. It, it more than likely, more than likely you won't get a DM from us and, and it won't be you, but it could be. That's the takeaway from this. Okay. Shooting yourself in the foot, Joe. They might. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well look um our twitter is at we speak common uh we are uh we speak common.com or if you want to email us uh we speak common at hotmail.com and um, tell us how much you love Candlekeep and all the other good stuff and then obviously our website is we speak common.com i said that already didn't i yes i did yeah i don't really know what you're saying now ben i, I don't really know why this podcast is, is is still going on you know this this episode i feel like we've sort of ran out of ideas at this point and um to wrap it up all right we'll end it there then um go and see us on twitter and get in touch with us and we will speak to you next week and we'll announce our winners on twitter too um cool i'll see you in candle keep joe cool man bye 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 Thanks for listening today. If you like the podcast, do us a favor. Leave us a like or review on your platform of choice and share us with your friends. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at WeSpeakCommon or through the email WeSpeakCommon at Hotmail.com. The music in the podcast is Street Dancing by Timecrawler82 and is licensed under an attribution license CC by NC. You can find it on the Free Music Archive.